Hello, everybody. We are back again with our Midweek Bible Podcast, and I'll remind you, as always, that if you have any questions about the Bible you would like to ask, if there are things that are just bugging you that you want to know the answer to, whether it's for things that uh, we've already read, whether it's for things that are coming up, whether it's for just questions you've always wanted to ask, you can send those in to me at forest.divini at asburycc.org. Uh, or you can just tell me in person if you see me at church on Sunday. You can put them, ask those questions through the church Facebook page, however you want to do it. But let's make sure if you have those questions, I want to make sure that they do get answered. So last week we talked a bit about the beginning of First Kings right up until Solomon's death so that you know what's going on. Um, this week we're going to actually start with, talk about just for a bit, how the kingdom splits and the things that happen in the aftermath of Solomon's reign, because we're now at that point in the stories. Um, so we'll just dive right in. So Solomon's, Solomon's reign, right? Solomon's famous for his wisdom, of course, right? So he's, he's celebrated because when, he's, when he has this vision where he talks with God and he, he's asked, well, I guess he's really told, you know, you can ask me for anything, what do you want? He doesn't ask for riches. He doesn't ask for, for you know, a great big army. He asks for wisdom, and he's celebrated because, of course, what better thing could a king ask for than wisdom? Which makes sense, right? The wiser the king, the better the rule in general. So his reign is characterized by his wisdom and by his wealth. Solomon is extremely rich, and the kingdom as a whole is extremely rich. During his time, the kingdom becomes very, very wealthy under Solomon's reign because he extends their trading networks. And perhaps most importantly, they are at peace. David basically conquered or destroyed all of the the traditional enemies of Israel. No one is fighting them anymore. And now they are big enough and wealthy enough that the, the major powers of the world, like Egypt, really don't want to mess with them because it's just not worth their time. And they're also in this kind of odd period of history where, you know, the, after the Bronze Age collapse, which happens right around the time that the Israelites are moving into the, the Promised Land, most of the world's major superpowers like the Hittite Empire, the original Babylonian Empire, uh, the Mycenaean Greek civilization, the Sumerian civilization down in Mesopotamia, um, they've all collapsed. Egypt is the only one that's left, and while they're still alive and still fairly powerful, um, they're not all that interested in conquering the world right now. They're kind of just making sure that they stay afloat. So Judges and First and Second Samuel and much of First Kings, they are the, the enemies that Israel fights are not these major, massive superpowers. They are small regional powers like the Philistines and the Moabites and these other relatively small, mostly tribal groups that Israel is fighting for, uh, and they're, they're fighting with them for supremacy of this region, and they've defeated them all. They've established themselves as, as the preeminent power in the region. They probably have enough wealth, actually, to go toe-to-toe with Egypt if they needed to, so they generally don't. There's no wars. It's at peace. The Assyrian Empire in the north has not quite yet actually developed into its full power yet. Neither have the Babylonians. This is a good time if you're Israel. There's no war. You have a lot of wealth. The future looks bright. 
And the end of Solomon's reign is at first, in, in 1 Kings 10, it's characterized by his wisdom and by his wealth. There's this story of the queen of Sheba coming to visit him, and, and Sheba is often identified as um, possibly a, a trading kingdom located somewhere in the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula. It's also widely believed to have been in Ethiopia, which is exactly what the Ethiopian Christians and Jews believe. Um, and in fact, the, the Jewish community in Ethiopia is one of, if not the oldest Jewish community in the world outside of Israel. Uh, and given the Actually, given the fact that the Jewish community in Israel has only really existed since the end of World War II now, because there was a long break where there were no Jews in Israel, um, the Ethiopian community in, in the, the Jewish community in Ethiopia is, is probably is just the oldest Jewish community in the world. Period, and they have long claimed that their existence is the result of the strong friendship between the Queen of Sheba and Solomon. So they they believe that their ancestors came to Ethiopia during the reign of King Solomon because there was a strong trading relationship between the two kingdoms and they were you know, coming down there to secure their interests. And the incredible thing is, they could very well be right. They've been there a long, long time. And it was also one of the oldest Christian communities in the world. Ethiopia is just a fascinating place. The Ethiopian Christians, by the way, claim that they possess the Ark of the Covenant. They say they've got it in one of their one of their churches and that it came to Ethiopia because when Solomon died, the Queen of Sheba smuggled it to Ethiopia, right, presumably for safekeeping. Now, the problem is, of course, no one can go in to look at the ark to verify that it's there or not. So you just have to take their word for it. Um, although, honestly, if you ask me, I find it very hard to believe that, it, that, that there's not something in that church. Whether it's the real ark or not is probably up for debate, but, um, but I think the Ethiopian Christians, and especially the ones who, who sort of tend to that church and are in the presence of, of whatever's in there, I think they truly believe they've got the Ark of the Covenant there. Um, whether it's real or not, who knows, but they sure do believe it's real. And they have said that for a very long time. There's a consistent tradition there. So they may be on to something. Anyway, that's a side note. But it is interesting because those communities and the presence of what they believe to be the Ark of the Covenant, what very well might be the Ark of the Covenant, are all the result of the success of Solomon as the king of Israel. And they help you also to realize that the ancient world was not nearly so small and isolated as we tend to believe. There were vast trading networks at play. Israel was trading with sub-Saharan African nations, not just Egypt. And so in this story in chapter 10, the queen of Sheba is awed by the wisdom of Solomon. And, and chapter 10 really does exalt his wisdom and his wealth because his wealth is tied to the wealth of the kingdom. If Solomon is prosperous, the whole kingdom is prosperous. So Israel's prosperity under Solomon is unprecedented for them. 
It has never happened before. It will never be this wealthy again. But there's a very abrupt change in chapter 11. We are about to be exposed to Solomon's character flaws. Evidently, his wisdom does not extend to obedience to God. Now let's pause here for a minute. Because there are two books of the Bible that are written by David and by Solomon respectively. And they do a very good job of illustrating each of their strengths and and in illustrating their strengths also showing off their weaknesses and how they're different. David uh, wrote most of the book of Psalms. He didn't write all of them, but he wrote most of them where Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs. Now it's generally said that if you want to know how to relate to God, how to build a quality relationship with God, how to behave properly around God, read the Psalms. If you want to know how to deal with people properly, read Proverbs. And there's a lot of truth in that. When you read through the book of Proverbs, Proverbs, you notice all of it is about people. It's very, very little of it is truly about who God is and how to deal with God. It's very much about people and how to deal with people and how to deal with foolish people and how to, deal, how to be wise in your interactions with human beings. And you see in David's story that David is very much a faithful man. He has his mistakes, to be clear. And as we'll see in a minute, some of his mistakes end up being the same ones that Solomon shares and that gets Solomon into trouble. But, but David deals with God well. He does not deal with people well. He makes a lot of enemies for himself. But he deals with God well. Solomon's kind of the opposite. Solomon deals with people very well. Right? Solomon's building alliances with all these nations around him. He's, he's establishing formal marriages to, to cement those alliances. He is the consummate politician. The people love him. But he doesn't, doesn't deal with God very well at all. Which is why Proverbs is all about how to deal with people wisely. And Psalms is all about how to deal with God wisely. But here's, here's where Solomon makes his mistake. He acquires a lot of wives and, according to the book, a lot of horses. Now, I don't know that God cares about the horses, but, but it's put in there for a reason. Israel, as a nation, always had an aversion to horses. Horses were associated with arrogant foreigners. Which makes sense because... Israel, the heartland of the kingdom of Israel, is the hill country, which is not good terrain for horses. Donkeys, sure, but not horses. Most people in Israel don't use horses. Donkeys are their pack animals. They ride donkeys. Donkeys pull their chariots. Solomon's acquiring a lot of horses. And an ancient Israelite person reading this would have instantly made that connection that he's, he's doing something, he, he's, he's adopting a way of living that would be foreign to the people of Israel. I don't know if there's a good modern equivalent that I can think of right off the, the top of my head. Um, so I'll, I won't try, but, but it's, this is just an odd behavior. God, God probably isn't worried about the horses. God's more worried about all these foreign wives that Solomon has acquired, right? He has like 700 wives. Now polygamy 
in the Bible is never explicitly forbidden. However, it never ends well for the people who engage in it. And, and God in, in Genesis institutes marriage as a monogamous institution. So while he never explicitly forbids polygamy, it, it's pretty clearly always been his intent that monogamy is what marriage is supposed to be. And Jesus will point back to that as well. And, and actually, by Jesus' time, pretty much all Jewish teachers agreed on that point, that polygamy was not acceptable for God's people, precisely because it wasn't how God intended them to work. It wasn't in the story of creation. Right? The story of creation is monogamous, right? Adam and Eve together, no other wives. Uh, and they point back to that story of creation and say, look, God's creational intent is what matters when determining how we're supposed to live, which is still true for us today. It's why we as Christians believe that polygamy is morally wrong. God created us for monogamy. So Solomon, but, but again, there's no explicit law forbidding it. So technically, Solomon is not breaking the law by having 700 wives. He is, however, breaking the law by having foreign wives. And it's worse than that, right? Solomon's marriages are political in nature. He is establishing political alliances. And those alliances, they undercut God's will and God's authority. In other words, instead of trusting God to protect Israel and to make Israel strong, he makes these alliances with other human beings, hoping that those alliances will make them strong and keep them protected. So that's the first part of the problem. The second part is that when he begins to allow some of these women to practice the religion of their homeland in Israel, which is explicitly forbidden by the law, and it will prove disastrous because during Solomon's reign, remember, no one is, no one is guilty of idolatry. No one is, is practicing the pagan religions. But after Solomon's reign, there will be 500 years of nonstop idolatry. They will be constantly practicing the pagan religions in Israel for 500 years. It's a disaster. Solomon's Marriages to foreign wives are a result of a lack of trust in God. And so the kingdom will shatter. God will keep his promise to David by retaining one tribe under the rule of David's descendants, but only one. It will be the tribe of Judah. And eventually the tribe of Benjamin will join along with them. But, but God's only promising Judah. All the others will go away. And that's what happens. Solomon dies. Judah remains loyal to Solomon's son. The other tribes, all of them, rebel and form their own kingdom. And there will be nearly constant warfare between the two kingdoms. Until the northern kingdom of Israel is annihilated. That's why we call these the lost tribes of Israel. Only Judah remains by the time of Jesus' day. There is only Judah and Benjamin. The other ten tribes are gone. They just cease to exist. And that's how the kingdom is split.
it will never again be united. It will always be two separate kingdoms until eventually the Assyrian Empire comes and wipes out the northern kingdom of Israel. Leaving behind just the tiny little kingdom of Judah, which will cling on to existence until the Babylonians come and carry them off into exile. We should understand that God works first in us, giving us the gifts and the talents to use for his glory, like the wisdom he gave to Solomon. But God does not force us to do anything. Everyone's gifts and talents are from God, but not everyone uses them as God intended. So the lesson of Solomon is that misusing our God-given abilities, using them for personal gain instead of for God's purposes, will always lead to ruin. Solomon is widely acclaimed in the Bible as the wisest man to have ever lived, and all that wisdom did nothing for him in the end because he did not use it as God intended him to use it. He used it to acquire wealth, to increase his power, to grow his kingdom, but not to glorify God. We are all given those gifts and talents. Whatever, whatever we are good at, whatever makes us special, whatever, whatever our best characteristic is, it is a gift from God. And if we do not use it as God wants us to use it, we're in trouble. May we all, may we all have the wisdom to use our gifts to the glory of God. Amen.